And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. I hope everyone enjoyed our previous episode where we took a look at the IDW miniseries Godzilla Oblivion. Very interesting comic book series that was. Today we are switching gears. We are moving back to the small screen and we're looking at two more episodes from the original Ultraman featuring two very interesting monsters and maybe a couple other monsters that might pop up there as well. But we will get into that very shortly. But first, we do have some news, so let's get right into it. Godzilla Minus One is breaking records in Japan. Since its release on November the 1st in Japan, the film has hit very big, pulling in a gross of 1.04 billion yen, which is approximately $7.8 million, from more than 648,000 tickets during its first three days. The film then went on to be number one again in its second weekend, essentially doubling its gross up to 2.1 billion yen, which is around 13.9 million, and has only continued to climb in the week since. Critically, the film is receiving widespread acclaim both in Japan and here in the West, with the film currently holding a higher aggregate score than both the original Godzilla and Shin Godzilla on the Japanese review aggregator Film Marks. Now, of course, that may be some recency bias in there, but this is all great news for the film, for Toho, and frankly for monster fans in general as we have rolled on through November. Don't forget, Godzilla Minus One comes to the U.S. on Friday, December 1st, only a few days away from when this episode is being recorded, so make sure you could check that one out. Coming out of the Godzilla Festival... In the month of November, we have a pair of new Godzilla shorts to watch. First was the Godzilla vs. Megalon 2023 short, which is a follow-up to last year's Godzilla vs. Gigan Rex short, but is a bit more ambitious than that one. Megalon fans, shout out to my friend Joe Butler, will eat this one up for sure. The second short is the live-action Fest Godzilla 4 Operation Jet Jaguar, featuring the newly crowdfunded Jet Jaguar suit. Now, in this one... Jet Jaguar is a JSDF asset deployed to stop a rampaging Godzilla, but there's a surprise turn at the end which brings the two together as allies once more. Both of these shorts are on the official Godzilla YouTube channel, and I must give Toho credit because they push these to all sorts of outlets here in the West, as I was generally bombarded with links and stories about these shorts during the time of the festival. Now this is all part of that groundswell of Godzilla hype as we move towards December 1st, which is just fine with me. The other item which I want to mention coming out of the Godzilla Festival is the reveal of Godzilla's 70th anniversary logo. The logo is a stark black and white silhouette of Godzilla with the number 70. It's very simple, but very striking. I personally am eager to see what Toho has in mind for Godzilla's 70th birthday in the coming year. In comics news, Marvel Comics has announced that they will be releasing an omnibus edition collecting all 24 issues of the Marvel Godzilla series. 
Longtime listeners will know that we covered all 24 issues of that series, plus a couple of knock-on appearances of the Marvel Godzilla, several years back here on the show. Now, Marvel has a black-and-white essential collection of the series, which has gone in and out of print a few times. But this will be the first time that the series will be collected in color as well as in hardcover. Now, no specific information has been released at this point and no solicitations out yet, other than that the book is expected to be out in October of 2024. The other information we have is that it will have three covers, two classic pieces by Herb Trimpey and a new piece by an artist named Junggan Yoon, who I'm not familiar with. More information on this volume as it develops. In Ultraman news, the new Netflix-exclusive show Ultraman Rise has dropped its trailer, and reactions have been mixed. That's probably the diplomatic way to say that. The official description states, Ken Sato, a famous but egotistical baseball player living a secret life as the giant superhero Ultraman, is forced to balance his career and hero duties after reluctantly adopting a baby kaiju after defeating its mother. Honestly... I'm not sure what to make of this series from the trailer. It looks more like a comedy than a, than a straight action series. I assume it's going to be somewhere in the middle. But I'll give it a shot when it comes out because, hey, it's Ultraman. I'll always give Ultraman a shot. Ultraman Rise is set to debut sometime next year on Netflix. And finally, in high-end TV news, Monarch Legacy of Monsters has debuted on Apple TV. As of this writing, three episodes of the ten scheduled have dropped, and so far... The reviews have been mostly strongly positive. I've not seen any of this series yet, as I do not have Apple TV currently, but I am hearing good things and I'm eager to check it out. Now, one thing I will say, my friend Adam Tebow, who you've heard on this show before, he did say that the first episode of Monarch is free on Apple TV. So I think you can, if you just download the app onto your device, I think you can watch the first one free. So that I'm going to definitely check out. And I recommend you guys check that out as well if you don't already subscribe to Apple TV. Uh, new episodes are scheduled to be released throughout December and into January. So maybe if you get an Apple TV subscription for the holidays, you can get caught up over winter break. You know, hey, just a thought. All right, that's all the news I've got. If you've got anything that you think is worth sharing her Earth Destruction Directive, go ahead and send it in, Directive at yahoo.com, and I'll be sure to give you credit here on the show. All right, we are going to take a quick break and come back with the first of not one, but two episodes of the original Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Can you hear me now, Jimmy? Excellente. I've been waiting a long time for this. What was that? <sighs> yes, Jimmy, I'll mention you. As you always remind me, I'm contractually obligated to do so. We good? <laughs> Alrighty then, let's get this promo started. <clears throat> Hello, kaiju lovers! I'm Nathan Marchand, a professional writer and raging nerd. You might remember me from the Kaiju Vision Radio podcast. Well, during my sabbatical to the Monsterland Resort to catch some rays and drink a few blue Hawaiians, I was hired as the curator of the Monster Island Film Vault. So I figured I might as well use the opportunity to make a podcast while I'm at it. I'll critically and academically analyze films from the Kaiju and Tokusatsu genres, in keeping with my philosophy of film appreciation, and have fun along the way. Each episode will feature members of my rotating roster of guest hosts, chosen from Monster Island's tourists, including John LeMay, Daniel DeManna, Ben Avery, and Nick Hayden. We'll walk through kaiju film history, starting with the granddaddy of all kaiju himself, King Kong! 
Yes, we'll be chronologically examining the eighth wonder of the world's filmography, culminating with his epic rematch against the King of the Monsters in 2020's Godzilla vs. Kong. Episodes will drop the second and fourth Wednesdays of every month. The first episode each month will be a full-length film discussion with the tourists, where I share these amazing films with both newcomers to the genre and veteran fans. The second will be a mini-sode on a variety of topics, starting with audio essays on classic Toho tokusatsu films. So join me and my intrepid producer, Jimmy from NASA, who miraculously survived the infamous war in space, as we embark on a new giant monster film journey starting September 2019. Check out our website, monsterislandfilmvault.com, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other fine podcatchers. The Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. How was that, Jimmy? What do you mean, it stinks? Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman, episode 36, Don't Shoot, Arashi! Subtitled featuring transformation monster Zaragas. Originally aired on March 19, 1967 on the Tokyo Broadcast System. Our writer is Masahiro Yamada, who wrote for several Ultra series, ranging from Ultra Q through Ultraman Ace, and then much later on wrote an episode of Ultra Q Dark fantasy. On this series, he wrote six episodes, including The Science Patrol Moves Out, featuring Naranga, The Demons Rise Again, featuring Aborus and Barilla, and Human Specimens 5 and 6, featuring the Dada. Now, outside of Ultraman, Yamada also wrote for the Subaraya series Mighty Jack, which, despite being best known in the West for its turn-on mystery science theater 3000, is actually one of Eji Subaraya's favorites of his own works. Our director of this episode is Kazuho Mitsuda, another long-tenured director for Subaraya. Prior to this, he directed two episodes of Ultra Q, along with two uh, episodes of Ultraman, The Mysterious Dinosaur Base featuring Jiris, and The Rascal from Outer Space featuring Gyango. Mitsuda would go on to direct 14 episodes of Ultra 7, plus additional Ultra and non-Ultra series episodes, including episodes of Mighty Jack, same as his writing partner here, Yamada. He also received several on-screen appearances in a few Ultra Series episodes and movies, playing usually like a security guard or something like that, which I thought was pretty funny. So our synopsis from the episode comes from ultraseries.fandom.com and goes a little something like this. One day, the Science Patrol is invited to visit the newly built Children's Hall. While visiting the hall's fifth floor, the team is taken in by the structure and its well-crafted interior and painted sky. Suddenly, the hall's ceiling caves in and a bright flash emits from the opening. The team manages to protect themselves with their visors, but a bystander who was with them is blinded by the light. Later, Captain Muramatsu learns that anyone who witnessed the flash had their corneas damaged by its intensity, in some cases permanently blinding them. The team is ordered to be alert in case it occurs again. Several days pass as a team patrols Japan, but no sign of the flash or its origins can be found. Thus, the science patrol soon forgets about it and considers it a freak accident. Suddenly, several days later, while the team visits the children's hall again, the flash appears again, and this time, the monster Zaragus emerges nearby and begins to rampage. The science patrol fights back against the monster as best they can, during which Arashi is nearly blinded for his reckless attack, and surprisingly, the monster is taken down by the VTOL's weapons. Suddenly, just as it appears that the science patrol is victorious, Zaraga recovers and molts part of its body to reveal tube-like protrusions all over itself, and it resumes thrashing about even more wildly. 
Before the science control can resume their attack, though, they are ordered to retreat, where the team learns from the defense force that Zaragas can adapt and grow resistant to their assaults, and unless there's a way to ensure its defeat in one hit, science patrol is forbidden to attack Zaragas in fear of it growing stronger. Later that day, Zaragas falls asleep, and the science patrol is called into action to save some children who are trapped in the hall. Hayata and Arashi go inside and manage to find the children, but their shouting inadvertently awakens Zaragas, who begins, who begins to show signs of rampaging again. During the rescue, Zaragas spots them and blinds Hayata and the children. Out of desperation, Arashi disobeys the patrol's orders and fires on Zaragas with Ide's new weapon, the QX gun. Despite being temporarily stunned by the attack, once again, Zaragas adapts to the attack and his protrusions gain the ability to emit the same blinding flashes as his eyes. The provoked Zaragas thrashes about again, destroying the children's hall, and for his disobedience, Captain Muramatsu removes Arashi and strips him of his badge. Filled with shame and regret for his actions, which are amplified upon visiting Hayata and the children in the hospital, Arashi decides to settle the score with Zaragas and steals a VTOL to battle the monster himself. Despite the warnings of his former teammates, Arashi engages Zaragas in battle, only to be blinded by Zaragas' flashes. Nearby, Hayata learns of Arashi's reckless action and staggers out of the hospital to assist him by turning into Ultraman. Ultraman confronts Zaragas and manages to save Arashi, fending off the monster by breaking off its horn. However, Zaragas manages to blind Ultraman too. Thanks to the intervention of Arashi weakening Zaragas, Ultraman manages to recover on his own and he fires on Zaragas with the Specium Beam, killing the monster. With Zaragas finally defeated, Arashi is reinstated back to the team for his efforts in helping Ultraman. However, to ensure he doesn't disobey orders again, he is firmly reminded by Captain Muramatsu to repeat one of the Science Patrol's rules until he understands how to follow them. As we close in on the end of the series, this is an episode which has stuck with me from the first time I saw it more than a decade ago. There's a fair amount to unpack here, so let's get right into the notes. On the surface, the episode seems straightforward. Monster arrives, the Science Patrol tries to fight it, and with the help of Ultraman, the threat is stopped. But clearly the real story here is the character study of Arashi. Arashi has typically been the more serious and sterner member of the Science Patrol, especially compared to his partner Ide. That's presented front and center in this episode. We get to see firsthand Arashi's frustration with not being able to stop the threat of Zaragas, as well as his anguish at both disobeying an order, as well as his hesitancy causing not only his teammate, but innocent children to be hurt. It is a great performance from Sandeyu Dokumamushi that we emphasize very strongly with Arashi throughout the episode and can understand or even agree with his choice to disobey a direct order. Arashi's anguish when one of the children asks, my eyes will get better, right, is plain and powerfully conveyed. Arashi's sense of duty to the science patrol and the chain of command is in one way a very Japanese concept, but one which is also familiar to Western audiences. The rule of law and order, strict adherence to the chain of command, is part and parcel in Japanese culture, given the structured, some would say rigid, nature of their culture. It's especially true in a military, or in this case, a paramilitary organization, with rank and titles being paramount. This is easily understood here in the United States with our similar history of military service, and even down to civil organizations such as local police or fire departments. The twist, then, is that Arashi eventually chooses to disobey his orders to take action that he feels is the moral right to protect the lives of Hayata and the children. This presents a legitimate moral quandary. Does Arashi make the right choice in attacking Zaragas, 
thus making him a more violent monster for protecting his charges. Would he have been better served to not attack Zaragas and try to get Hayata and the kids to safety? There are reasonable responses on both sides of the coin here. In Ridley Scott's Academy Award-winning film Gladiator, the mantra repeated by the general-turned-slave-turned-gladiator Maximus is strength and honor. In the film, the mantra evokes the characteristic behavior of doing what is right even at great and terrible personal cost. Arashi demonstrates much the same here, knowing that he will pay a price for his actions, but that he cannot let Hayata or the children be killed. Later, Arashi decides that even though he was already drummed out of the science patrol, that it is his responsibility to fix the situation he caused, again at great personal risk. Only this time, the risk is to his very life rather than his rank in the patrol. To a Western audience, the idea of taking this course of action could be called going out on your own terms, or in a more negative connotation, cowboying off despite what you've been ordered to do. I'd leave it to each member of the audience to make their own judgment on Arashi's actions and whether he was justified or not in stealing the jet VTOL and engaging Zaragas. It is clear that Yamada understands the subtlety here, and that while service and duty are incredibly crucial, there is also a requirement for each of us to be governed by morality in our choices and actions. Another fascinating aspect of this episode comes from the mounting frustration we see in Arashi, as well as the captain when it comes to the bureaucracy under which the science patrol must operate. It's a fairly minor portion of the episode as far as screen time, but it's the driver of the entire story. This sort of criticism of bureaucratic oversight in the face of a crisis would continue to evolve in the daikaiju genre as well as other Japanese media, reaching its most well-known pinnacle with Shin Godzilla, but being plainly evident even as early as 1971 with Godzilla vs. Hedra, which I previously covered with my brother Jason on this show. Now, in this case, one can even sympathize with the brass's decision, If the monster gets more destructive every time we attack it, well, stop attacking it. But that manner of thinking does not solve problems, only pushes them down the road. At some point, something would have to be done about Zaragas as a violent monster. And it was clear that something had to give eventually. Now, speaking of, Zaragas is a solid monster built off the Gomorrah suit, of all things. Looking at him, he looks different enough from Gomer to make that determination difficult at first. But as you get a better look at his torso and chest, it becomes clearer. The concept of him as an evolving monster, able to continually evolve beyond whatever weapons with which he is attacked, is a classic trope from the superhero genre which translates well here. Now, given that I was born in 1980, I don't think it's a shock to most that I will always associate this trope with the DC Comics creature Doomsday, best known for killing Superman. In follow-ups to that story, creator Dan Jurgens gave Doomsday an origin of forced evolution as a form of experimentation continually forcing a genetically modified creature to be killed repeatedly to make it stronger. Naturally, this eventually backfires on the scientists, and Doomsday was unleashed on the DCU. The use of blinding light is also a nice touch, as unlike a traditional breath or beam weapon, there's no way to dodge a flash of light. You either have protection or you don't. Zaragas would end up coming back in the modern Ultra era, first popping up, like many other monsters, in Mega Monster Battle Ultra Galaxy the movie, and then later showing up in Ultraman Ginga, X, and Trigger. Amusingly, Zaragas also has a cameo in the Toho film, Terror of Mechagodzilla, as one of Professor Mifune's anatomical drawings of dinosaurs, along with fellow Ultramonsters Telesodon and Kengular. The special effects in this episode are well executed with some excellent monster carnage, which is old hat for Subaraya at this point. There's a wonderful shot where we are looking down an alley at Zaragas, creating a sharp view of the scale and distance of the cityscape. The battle with Ultraman also has a couple of nice touches, which I appreciated. 
When Zaragas charges at Ultraman, our hero chops Zaragas' horn right off. But when Zaragas blinds Ultraman, the lights in our hero's eyes go out to indicate his blindness. Both touches amused me and made the battle stand out. The addition of Arashi in the Jed VTOL, including Ultraman saving him, is a nice call too. Now my good friend and loyal listener Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network sent in some pre-feedback for this episode, and here's what the professor thought about Don't Shoot Arashi. Luke, I'm starting to wonder what comes next after your coverage of Ultraman wraps up. As you know, I spent time earlier this year figuring out what to do with my portfolio of podcasts as time rolls on, how to shake them up and what to keep, what to let go, and what to start up. But before we get to that, and Professor, just to jump in, yes, I've been having those exact discussions with myself and trying to plan what comes next, so I'm, I'm right there with you. But before we get to that, you have two more pairs of episodes to cover, and here are my thoughts on the penultimate set of episodes. Uh, the blue screen at the top of the episode actually wasn't that bad, and I'm guessing it blew me away as a kid. Beyond that, it's a fairly standard episode with a fairly standard monster, although the Science Patrol's conflict with their bureaucratic higher-ups is what makes it, it so interesting. I like the notion of a Science Patrol agent going rogue, which I imagine in that culture, at that time, is quite unusual, and not to be respected as it would be here in the U.S. The manner in which he is reintegrated into the Science Patrol at the end must have been a powerful lesson Japanese children of that era. Very good insight on that one as well, Professor. Thank you for that feedback. Overall, Don't Shoot Arashi is a strong character-driven episode with a well-constructed story. The emotional core of the episode, Arashi's struggle between his duty to the science patrol and his own conscience, is excellent, shines a spotlight on a character who is normally much more stoic. The monster Zaragas may not be super popular, but he fills his role well, with a pair of novel gimmicks and a menacing look and the effects and action are what you would expect from Tsuburaya at this stage of the series. So altogether, this makes a standout episode. Now, if you would like to watch Don't Shoot Arashi, you have a couple of options. You can pick up the original series on Blu-ray from Mill Creek, which I do believe still include the movie's free digital copies, whatever those are worth at this point. In addition, the episode can be streamed for free with ads on Shout Factory TV. So what do you think? Did you guys enjoy Don't Shoot Arashi? Did you enjoy the... The, the moral quandary, the idea of the bureaucratic interference. What do you think about the monsters of Ragas? Write me in and we'll talk about it. Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. All right, we are going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back covering our second episode of Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again, may have about a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra Of how they spoke at length continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This 
is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search on iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman episode 37, The Little Hero, subtitled featuring Monster Chief Geronimon, originally aired March 26, 1967 on Tokyo Broadcast System. Our writer is Tetsuo Kinjo, and we have mentioned him before several times on the show, one of the key creators of the Ultra series, one of the creators of Ultra Q, and head writer of both Ultraman and Ultra 7, and of course, the beloved Ultra Mecha King Joe is named in his honor. Our director is Kazuo Mitsuda, who directed the previous episode. So you go back a little bit, you can get his background. Uh, our synopsis, once again, comes from ultraseries.fandom.com and goes a little something like this. One day, a nearby shopping mall goes into a panic frenzy and the science patrol is called into action when a pair of policemen alert them that a monster is terrorizing it. To their surprise and delight, the monster is none other than Pigmon, who has somehow returned to life. Taking Pigmon back with them to their HQ, the team discusses why Pigmon has returned, wondering if he is trying to tell them something. Retrieving Dr. Gonda of the Tozai University and having him work alongside Ide, the men hurry to decipher Pigmon's message, but the process is both very stressful and complicated on both. Ide in particular appears to be depressed as he neglects work on the translator and fixing the science patrol's weapon in favor of working on decoding Pigmon's warning. Later that night, Hayata confronts Ide about neglecting his jobs, to which he learns that Ide is having doubts about his position in the team. Ide believes that he and the Science Patrol are outclassed by Ultraman's abilities. Hayata reminds Ide that some of the monsters the team has fought against, including Antlar and Temular, who were defeated by the Patrol, as well as that some of Ultraman's past victories were thanks in part to the Science Patrol's intervention. Despite Hayata's words of encouragement, Ide continues to remain distant and doubtful of himself. Later, Pigmon flies into a panic to the confusion of Dr. Gandhi. In a canyon far away from the HQ, the monsters Telesodon and Duraco are somehow revived and engage one another in a battle. During their scuffle, though, a bellowing noise is heard close by, and the two monsters settle down. The next day, Dr. Gonda and Ide finish deciphering Pigmon's message with the monster translator. Pigmon tells the team that a monster chieftain named Geronimon is coming. Geronimon is enraged at Ultraman and the Science Patrol for killing his monsters and out of vengeance, plans on reviving 60 monsters all over the world to wreak havoc in five hours, and that Pigmon happened to be one of the monsters revived. Realizing what was about to happen, the Science Patrol heads out to stop Geronimon's attack. Arriving at oh Mount Ohiwayama, the Science Patrol finds Telesodon and Duraco and proceeds to attack them from the ground. Captain Muramatsu, Arashi, and Fuji manage to kill Telesodon thanks to their superguns. Hayata and Ide have more difficult with Duraco, though, as Ide is more concerned about when Ultraman will arrive to fight the monster instead. During their fight, Duraco is wounded by Hayata, and the monster attempts to kill Ide. Hayata is prepared to transform into Ultraman, but upon hearing Ide call out for Ultraman's help rather than fight back, Hayata refrains, knowing it will only prove Ide's doubts right. Just as Duraco goes to attack, Pigmon suddenly appears and distracts Duraco by shouting loudly at the bigger monster. Annoyed by Pigmon's shouting, Duraco sadistically crushes Pigmon beneath his hand, killing the little monster once again. Enraged and disgusted at Ide for his cowardice, 
Hayata slaps him out of rage, which finally gets through to Ide of what he's done. Now angry at himself for letting Pigmon be killed, Ide pulls himself together and surprisingly manages to kill Jiraka with his newest weapon, the Spark Bomb. Now with both of his monsters dead, Geronimon shows himself and attacks him with his zero gravity beam. This time, Hayata transforms into Ultraman and rescues the team before confronting Geronimon. The monster chieftain keeps Ultraman on edge with his feather shots, but the hero manages to destroy them by leading them into the air and blasting them all with his specium beam. Afterwards, the hero pins Geronimon, tears off the rest of his feathers, and hoists him up so the monster chieftain can be destroyed not by himself, but by Ide and the spark bomb. With Geronimon killed, the monster's plan foiled, Ide's confidence in himself and the team is restored for being the one to kill the monster chieftain. Despite his elation, though, the team is still mournful at Pigmon's death, and the science patrol gives their fallen friend a moment of silence for his bravery. Like the previous episode, The Little Hero is a character-driven episode, which is masquerading as a more standard monster on the loose fair. Coming on the heels of an Arashi episode, it only makes sense to have an episode focused on Ide, so let's get into the notes. Ide's dilemma is one which I have heard echoed by both fans and casuals over the years. Why does the support team even try to fight the monsters when Ultraman always comes in and saves the day? Besides being demonstrably untrue, Hayata himself providing several examples in this episode, the team concept is part and parcel with the entire premise of the franchise. This has always struck me as one of the major differentiators between the Ultra franchise and, say, Kamen Rider or some of the Metal Hero shows, where your hero was always part of and backed up by a team, while the Henshin heroes often were on their own or perhaps only had a single partner. The teamwork and unified effort aspects of this story engine are a fundamentally Japanese idea, especially given the Showa-era origins of this show. In a culture where cooperation is paramount, having your hero be part of a team strikes me as fully appropriate. This even gets signposted in the next series, as the name Ultra 7 comes from our hero being considered the seventh member of the team, since, naturally, no one realizes that one of their own is secretly the hero, but I digress. Having Ide be the one who suffers the crisis is a good choice, as Ide is normally a very enthusiastic and energetic character. He's always excited about trying out his newest invention or weapon, and he's known for his outsized and clownish outbursts in his role as a comedy character. This episode plays him against type, similar to how the stoic Arashi had to come to grips with his own emotional crisis in the previous episode. Now, as much as Ide's reaction is a driver for this episode, Hayata's response is also noteworthy. As the human host to Ultraman, Hayata is the outsider looking in on humanity, a concept which becomes more pronounced in later Ultra series. Hayata's attitude that not only that Ultraman and humanity must work together to defend the Earth, but indeed that it is the duty of every human to defend the Earth, is a very noble and principled stance, which again is very expected in a Showa series. This is additional evidence of the cooperative teamwork, which is the guiding tenet of the series. Everyone has a role to play and a duty to perform. Hayata does not get the spotlight as often simply due to the fact that he has to go transform to Ultraman at the end of each episode. So I appreciate it being he who was the one who delivered the wake-up call to Ide this time out. Now, if we're talking about the heroes of this episode, I'd be remiss if I did not mention Pigmon. The friendly monster from way back in episode 8, The Lawless Monster Zone, which we covered on episode 32 of this show. Pigmon is a perennial favorite among the creators of the Ultra series when they need a monster who is not a threat. He has come back many times since that original appearance, returning in The Ultimate Hero, Tiga, Max, X, and RB. 
His appearance here is quite similar to his turn in the Lawless Monster Zone. He arrives in time to help the heroes, then is killed in a battle with a much larger monster, sacrificing himself to help our heroes. Some things never change, I suppose. The scenes of Pigmon and Professor Gonda are also legitimately a hoot as well. The main monster this time out, Geronimon, has not fared as well in popularity. His design is most notable for the use of the many colorful feathers. But beyond that, he's a fairly straightforward reptile. The beard and other fur trimmings are also a nice touch, but he does not stand out as one of the better designed foes in my opinion. I also think he's hurt by his name, as it becomes clear that the inspiration for this kaiju is Native American tropes. This goes right down to his title, The Monster Chief, which makes sense given his resurrection powers, but simply has not aged particularly well. The final battle is unique, thanks again to the feathers, but does seem a touch too long in the grand scheme of things. Geronimon's servant monsters, Duraco and Telesodon, are much more welcome, as they are two of my favorites. Duraco, he previously appeared back in episode 25, the mystery comet Suifon, which we covered on episode 87, has always struck me as a sort of prototypical Gigan, and that continues here. Now, Telesodon, who originally appeared in episode 22, Overthrow the Surface, as covered on episode 76 of the show, now he's a classic ultra foe, reappearing many times over the years, and is one of the most prolific ultra monsters. It's great to see both of them back, even if only for a little more than an extended cameo appearance, and their moody nighttime battle is a great little scene within an action, albeit briefly. Professor Allen also sent in pre-feedback for this episode, so let's get his thoughts on The Little Hero. The fact that Pigmon runs across Pigmon merchandise is an early example of meta-textuality. The character creates a light atmosphere as is Ide's reaction to him, which makes the drama of the story all the more dramatic. Even Ultraman fighting feathers turn dramatic. More importantly, who does the Science Patrol turn to when they need a hero, someone to literally crack Pigmon's code? That's right, it's a university professor. Nuff said. Nuff said indeed, Professor. Good call. Professor wraps up. Keep up the good work, Luke. Keep them stomping. Thank you again for your feedback, Professor. Yeah, the I love the beginning with all the merchandise. We get to see, besides actual Ultra merchandise, including Pigmon, there's also there's Disney merchandise. So, like, Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, and Donald Duck toys all appear in that department store scene with Pigmon. It's a fantastic view of the westernization of Japan in 1967, just in children's toys, right? Overall, The Little Hero is another solid episode with a strong monster cast and a wonderful human story. The final battle is a little bloated, but Ide's crisis, Hayata's powerful refutation of Ide's self-pity, the return of three popular monsters, and the comedy scenes of Pigmon and the Professor makes for an overall well-assembled package definitely worth your time for viewing. Now, if you would like to watch The Little Hero, again, you can check it out on Blu-ray from Mill Creek, or it can be streamed on Shout Factory TV, and it is included on those movie, sp movie spree streaming service if you have that Blu-ray or bought it digitally, before the storefront was deemed no longer profitable. So now I throw it once again to you, the audience. What did you think of the little hero? Do you like having Pigmon back? What do you think about Pigmon? Pigmon has a, a great scene in a Mega, Mega Monster Battle Ultra Galaxy involving uh, Ultraman uh, Zero, which uh, Derek Crabb and I talked about many years ago. Uh, so what did you think of it? Do you like Geronimon? Do you like having Telesodon and Jiraco back? What do you think about Ide's Crisis of Conscience? Write me in, EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. We can talk about it. All right, folks, that's all I've got in these two episodes. I'm going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back with listener feedback and closing out the show right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, 
science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanholes soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. All right, folks, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. I hold in my hand listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter slash X. You can find me on YouTube. Just listen to the outro and all that information will be there. So let's get into it. Our email today comes from Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange from Magazines and Monsters. Billy D writes in about episode 122. Billy writes, hey, Luke. Hey, Billy. Wanted to write and say thanks for another good show and the shout-out. I'm not 100% sure if I've seen Atragon. I will definitely seek it out, though, as it sounds fun. I've seen the movie poster, which, now that I'm thinking of it, Japan had some really fantastic posters back in the day, didn't they? Even if the movie itself was just okay, the posters usually draw me in, as do good podcasts, wink, nod. Look forward to catching up with your show as I'm a bit behind for vacation and work craziness. Take care. Billy D. Billy, first off, thank you very much for writing in. Really appreciate that. And yeah, um, the Japanese movies always did have interesting ones, but then I think a lot of times when they would break brought over to the West, there's just so many colorful, crazy elements from these Japanese films that the that was uh, that one sheet was a great way for the American distributors to market it. Right? There was all those all those uh, machines and monsters and scenes that they could you know, splash on a one sheet and, you know, painted color and all that. And the Atragon one sheet, the American one is very nice. I think you're definitely onto something. And I'll echo my, my thoughts from that episode. I think you would enjoy Atragon just because it's such a Showa type of adventure, right? And, and there's, it, it touches on so many different things. It really does play like a, like a silver age sort of comic book. And it, and that it wears its, uh, adaptation on its sleeve, right? The idea that it was a, an adventure story that was turned into a movie. So if you watch it, let me know what you think. I'd love to hear about it. Um, thank you again for writing in. And we do have some more emails in the bag. I do appreciate it. I did get a few more emails after I said we were running out. So thank you very much, everyone. Again, uh, love getting emails and feedback. So if you do want to send email, Directive at yahoo.com, we will read every email on the show. So thank you very much, Billy. And thank you to my other feedbackers who we will get to you in later episodes. Social media love for the last episode came from my brother, Jason Giaconetti. Derek, Derek WC, that fan hole. Chuck Rodriguez, Crystal Lady Jessica, the Henshin Men podcast. Nathan Marchand and Jimmy from NASA, together they are, the Monster Island Film Vault. The Power Trip podcast, the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, we heard them earlier. The uh, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army. Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, the aforementioned Billy D. Bucky Yarrow, History of Comics on Film, the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, Bill at Spy Vinyl, Chuck Rodriguez, Chris Mounts, and Brian Severe. And thank you, everyone, for all of that social media, those likes, those reposts, those thumbs-ups, all that stuff. It really does help. It gets word for the show out. Every podcast, at least ones I've ever made, are all a labor of love. And uh, I can tell you that I appreciate every one of those social media interactions because it helps promote the show and it shows that you folks out there are enjoying what I'm doing. And that, that is a great 
great reward for me that this creative thing, air quotes up to the my creative thing that I'm doing, uh, you you all are enjoying. So thank you very much for that feedback. And I really, really appreciate it. I'd also like to take this opportunity as we uh, are in the, we're in the holiday season, right? As I'm recording this, Thanksgiving's ha- Thanksgiving, easy for me to say, has happened and we're moving on into, uh, you know, the, the big, the, your big holiday month in December. Um, but all are welcome here at Dirt Destruction Directive. If you want to be part of this show, you can interact with this show in any way that makes you feel comfortable. If you want to listen uh, and not feedback, if you want to send in feedback, if you want to join our Discord over on the Two True Freaks Discord na- um, server and join our, our, our little uh, chat over there, you are welcome to do so. We're not a gatekeeping show. We're a show for the people. We're a fan-based show. So um, all are welcome. And Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone and always will be. So uh, if you love monsters, then you're welcome here. Okay, just follow the rules and everybody will be happy, right? So, <laughs> All right. So as I said, we're moving into December. It's getting a little chilly. Even here in South Carolina, it's getting a little chilly. Uh, so what are we covering? So the next time out, I'm covering a film. Now, this is a Chinese film. And I think it came out in 2019. But I've seen different dates for when this film came out. I've also seen different titles. As I've seen it under the name Snow Creature. I've seen it under the name Snow Monster. And I've seen it under the name Snow Monster versus Ice Shark. Either way, that's the film we're going to be watching. If you go to Tubi TV, it's under Snow Monster versus Ice Shark. You can find it on YouTube under both Snow Monster and Snow Monster versus Ice Shark. And this is from like its distributor. Right, so this is not like oh Luke found someone. No, the, the distributor has it on on their YouTube channel. So go check this out. Should be a perfect winter movie, right? I mean, it's got a snow monster and an ice shark, apparently. So I'm really looking forward. Shout out to Thomas DJ, who was the one who uh, originally put me onto this film. I haven't watched it, so we're gonna find out together, right? So let's give it a shot as we move into the winter with our, our winter uh, winter wonderland of uh, of monsters here. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show today. I hope everyone enjoyed our coverage of these two episodes of Ultraman. Uh, Remember, you can find me on Facebook. Just search for Luke EDD. You can find me on Twitter under the handle at El Giacone. Also look for the hashtag Earth Destruction Directive. You can find us on YouTube. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive, naturally, and you'll find us there. Uh, I do have a presence on the Internet Archive. It's where I've been backing up all the episodes. So if you search for... Uh, El Jacone, L-J-A-C-O-N-E, or Earth Destruction Directive on the archive at archive.org. You can find us there. Um, we also do have our Discord. Uh, the link should be in the show notes for that. If uh, And if anybody needs that, I can get, get them the link so that they can join the Two True Freaks Discord. And then we have an Earth Destruction Directive channel on there. So please uh, join in. I try to be active on the Discord. You know, I'm an old man, right? So the Discord, you kids do this Discord thing, and that's a that's a new and scary thing to me in my old age. But I do try it, and uh, I do appreciate getting the um, you know the chatter going on there as well. So all of those avenues are open to you if you'd like to interact with the show. And as I said, everyone's welcome to interact as they feel comfortable. So as I said, thank you very much for listening as we talk about Ultraman. Please come back next time as we're going to talk about Snow Creature, Snow Monster, Snow Monster versus Ice Shark, Snow Monster versus the Ice Capades, whatever it is. And uh, until that time, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work, 
celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name EDD. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod, downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.